Leanne Sproul writes about an experience and feeling I believe we all have had. As a child, I was taught to say I'm sorry. The apology was intended to mend feelings and claim responsibility for an incident. I was also expected to receive an apology and give forgiveness to whoever had offended me. Receiving and giving forgiveness was a part of growing up and learning how to relate to others. But I remember how difficult this process was for me. Thinking about it now, how often did I really feel sorry for what I did? Being stubborn, I often felt justified in my actions. I was angry, hurt, and defensive. The last thing I wanted to do was take responsibility for the things I had said and done, especially when I felt they were warranted. And what about the apology? The other child was usually coerced by their parents to utter their words of remorse. I often evaluated their sincerity and questioned whether they realized the full ramifications of their actions. I doubted motives and had a hard time forgiving someone when I thought their admission of guilt was less than genuine, probably another indication of my stubbornness. Now that I have children of my own, I realize the character my parents were trying to instill in me through giving and receiving forgiveness. Regardless of my reasons, they wanted me to recognize the part I played in causing the situation to turn south. I was learning to give and receive grace. My parents were preparing me for life. They knew that as we live in this world, the wrongs against us increase. The wounds dig deeper and the healing takes longer. What can compare to a parent faced with forgiving someone who has harmed their child? What about the spouse forgiving the partner who broke their family apart? We are surrounded by stories of injustice, people being unfairly treated, wounds that pierce our hearts, leaving lasting scars. My friends, it's not only hard to forgive, it's a fight to forgive. If I were to ask you to visualize a person you hate right now, or someone who has wronged you greatly or stabbed you in the back, perhaps a close friend or family member, and ask you to forgive him or her, could you and would you do it? I'm sure many of us could not and would not forgive and simply think to ourselves, God will understand because He knows all and He sees all and He knows the hurts they've caused in my life. And yet God tells us throughout the Scriptures to forgive one another without even naming any conditions or exceptions. Why would God tell us to do something that is so hard, perhaps nearly impossible to do? How does this practically work out in my daily Christian life? Let's take a look at the Bible to see what it says about this matter as we continue our sermon series, Voyager, studying the missionary journeys of the Apostle Paul as recorded in the divinely inspired Scriptures. If you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Acts chapter 15 as we study verses 36 to 41. Acts chapter 15 verses 36 to 41 as we continue our study in the book of Acts and draw out three biblical principles concerning fighting and forgiving. Picking up where we left off, Paul, Barnabas, and Silas were now back ministering in the city of Syrian Antioch. They'd returned from Jerusalem with a decision from the apostles and elders that affirmed their ministry work with the Gentiles. Gentiles, like the Jews, could come to salvation by God's grace through faith alone in Jesus Christ alone 
without any additional works, such as following the Mosaic laws. Now, we also remember that it was the church in Antioch that commissioned Paul to go with Barnabas on their first missionary journey to Cyprus in Asia Minor. We also remember that on that journey, Acts chapter 12, verse 25 told us that they had taken Barnabas's younger cousin, John Mark, with them as their assistant. And with the mighty work of the Holy Spirit, many came to know Jesus Christ as their personal Savior. Paul and Barnabas made a great team. Paul, the intellectual powerhouse, eloquent and bold. With Barnabas, the great encourager, one who knew the heart of the people and had a pulse of the people. Paul was type A and Barnabas type B, and both complemented each other so well that they were very effective in the ministry as empowered by the Holy Spirit. We remember from Acts chapter 14 in Lystra how the people thought they were the powerful Greek deity tandem, Zeus and Hermes. Everyone would have expected that they would continue in this partnership if ever they were to go on another missionary journey. And this is where we pick up the story in Acts chapter 15, verse 36. Then after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, Let us now go back and visit our brethren in every city who will preach the word of the Lord and see how they are doing. The Bible tells us after some time, Paul wanted to check in on the converts in their first missionary journey to see how they were doing and invited Barnabas to go along with him like before. They planned for a second trip, but that's when some issues arose. I read now verses 37 to 38. Now Barnabas was determined to take with them John called Mark, but Paul insisted that they should not take with them the one who had departed from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. Barnabas wanted to take his younger cousin John Mark, but Paul said absolutely not. The reason Paul didn't want him to go with them was because John Mark had abandoned them when they were in Perga, having just landed in Asia Minor, as Acts chapter 13, verse 13 recounts. Now, the Bible doesn't mention at all the reason why John Mark left them and returned to Jerusalem before the journey was over. Perhaps it was because the trip had gotten more perilous and the heat was turning up, and John Mark, being young, could not take it and wanted to go back home. You see, for Paul, the gospel work was so important that they could not have anyone quitting halfway through. They could not have anyone messing up or jeopardizing this spiritual endeavor. But for Barnabas, his argument was that we should give John Mark another chance. He saw beyond his early failures and saw the abilities, spiritual gifts, and talents of John Mark and saw him as an asset who would have learned his lesson from the first time. But look what happened in verse 39. Then the contention became so sharp that they parted from one another. Here you have two friends, two Christian friends, two Christian leaders. These were two spiritual leaders who loved Jesus and were spirit-filled, leaders in the church having a disagreement and were arguing. So intense was their argument and disagreement that they had to split up. You know, I'm glad this verse is in the Bible because I want you to take note of the fact that it is natural for Christians, because they are sinners and not perfect, to argue and have disagreements. And this is our first biblical principle, biblical principle number one. Christians will have disagreements and arguments. Christians will have disagreements and arguments. 
Listen carefully. Being Christians, and even being spiritually mature Christians, does not mean we will always agree on everything or are supposed to agree on everything. Christians do fight, but how we handle the disagreement in love and forgiveness should be what is different and causes the world to take notice. In the case of Paul and Barnabas, each probably thought they were right, and honestly, each side had their valid argument. Whether you're reading this passage for the first time or read this passage before, I'm sure many of us have taken sides, Team Paul or Team Barnabas, and looked through the lenses of how you would act in such a situation because of your own personal experience or your personality. Honestly, with my personality and what I've gone through, I would have sided with Paul. But notice carefully that the Bible does not tell us which one was right or wrong, as it often does in other arguments, like in Galatians chapter 2, when Paul confronts Peter and Barnabas, and Paul was clearly in the right. But in this case, the Bible does not take sides. Both were probably right in their approach, and both felt so strongly about their position and conviction that neither one was willing to back down. If you think about it, both had good points. Paul perhaps thought that Barnabas was always too trusting and too encouraging. He needs to know when to pick better people for an important task. Paul must have thought that the gospel work is too important to leave to novices, and people have shown that they will bail when the heat has turned up. Perhaps Paul argued that it was too soon for John Mark to venture out. Let him mature more and have more life experience. Barnabas, on the other hand, would have argued to Paul that God is a God of second chances who is loving and forgiving. In fact, he may have pointed out the fact that God gave Paul another chance when he messed up in life. Why would Paul not extend the same grace to John Mark? There is no doubt that this young man was gifted and talented. He would go on to become the gospel writer of the book of Mark, a great evangelist and leader who tradition tells us founded the church in Egypt and later became a great help to many, including to Paul. Barnabas would have argued that a Christian matures and gains experience through trips like this. You know, some Christians erroneously feel that any disagreement between believers is sinful but there's no indication in the biblical text that this difference of opinion was sinful. Differences of opinions are not sinful. Unless a difference is over what is clearly stated in the Scriptures as right and wrong, then having a different perspective or asking questions and challenging assertions is not wrong. In fact, this is what the godly Bereans did, as we'll see in a few weeks. The Bible reminds us in the book of Proverbs that in the counsel of many, there is wisdom and safety. One can even go so far as to say that warranted disagreements are healthy, and leaders should invite and welcome constructive criticism given in love and grace. Whatever the case, words were said, arguments were made, and you have two best friends, mature Christian leaders who could not see eye to eye, suddenly unable to work with each other. But they don't storm off mad. They don't lose their friendship. They simply agreed to disagree and mutually parted ways. A separation from a common ministry for them was the best approach in order to reflect Christ-likeness, even in the midst of their disagreement. As much as we would like, 
there are times when Christians simply do not or cannot work well together because of personalities or other factors, and we should not force the issue. So let us remember and accept the reality that Christians will argue and disagree. It should not be a surprise to us. You know, one of the first warnings I give to new church workers who come to join the church staff is to remove their idealized perception of what they think church work life is like. I tell them you will see people argue and disagree. You will see people lose their cool. You will see me on my good days and my bad days. You may be upset with my decision and not be very happy with me. And it's okay. While church work life should be better than the secular world, some days don't be surprised it may look worse because we're still sinners. And when you get a bunch of sinners together, you don't get perfection. You get imperfection. Perhaps this should be the same warning I give to all church volunteers, all life group members, and even the church as a whole. The church is not perfect, and you will disagree and argue with people in this church community. But you don't need to leave the church because of this. Just like you don't leave your own family over your first argument, one should not leave the church family over a petty or simple disagreement or argument. The Bible challenges us to love each other, to forgive one another, to work it out. Look at the results in verses 39 to 41. And so Barnabas took Mark and sailed to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and departed, being commended by the brethren to the grace of God. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. The Bible tells us both went their separate ways. The power team of Paul and Barnabas was now Paul and Silas and Barnabas and John Mark. Barnabas and John Mark headed to Cyprus to encourage the believers there, and Paul and Silas went to Asia Minor. They both parted ways, and while sad, the silver lining is that now you have two missionary teams instead of one. Now that we have established that Christians will disagree, argue, and fight, you may be assuming that I'm now going to tell you we need to forgive one another and your defensive walls are starting to come up, you may be thinking, but pastor, you do not know what that person did to me. Turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 12 to 15. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 12 to 15, as I want to share another biblical principle on fighting and forgiving in Paul's letter to Timothy. And I thank Christ Jesus our Lord, who has enabled me, because He counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry. Although I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent man, but I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was exceedingly abundant with faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. In these verses, you have Paul writing to young Timothy as he looked back at his life and he told him how bad he was towards God and the things of God. Verse 13 tells us, Paul writes, he was a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent man, but how by the undeserving grace and love of God, he was saved and forgiven in verses 14 and 15, even though Paul was the worst of sinners. And from these verses, we can extrapolate our second biblical principle on fighting and forgiving. Biblical principle number two. Remember the forgiveness of God in our lives. 
remember the forgiveness of God in our lives. My friends, before we can even think about forgiving someone else, think about your own life and think through your own relationship with God and see how many times you have abandoned Him, stabbed Him in the back, promised Him something but didn't do it, lie to Him, telling Him you will never do it again, only to do it again, and other terrible and sinful things. And then see how many times He has forgiven you through His shed blood. It is every time if we were genuine in asking for forgiveness. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7 clearly tells us, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7, In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of His grace. Do we deserve to be forgiven? Absolutely not. After all that we have done to the Lord, none of us deserve to be forgiven. And yet by the love and grace of God, His undeserved favor, we are forgiven. We are forgiven. I'm reminded of this story where one night in a church service, a young woman responded to the gospel and accepted Jesus as her Savior. She had a very rough past involving alcohol, drugs, and prostitution. But the change in her was evident. As time went on, she became a faithful member of the church. She eventually became involved in the ministry, teaching young children. It was not long before this faithful young woman caught the eye and heart of the pastor's son. Their relationship grew, and they began to make wedding plans. This is when the problems began. The church members began to argue about the matter. About half of the church members did not think that a woman with such a past, such as hers, was suitable for a pastor's son. At a meeting, as the people made their arguments and tensions increased, the situation got completely out of hand. The young woman became very upset about all the things being brought up about her past. As she began to cry, the pastor's son could not bear the pain it was causing his wife to be. He stood to speak. My fiancé's past is not what is on trial here. What you are questioning is the ability of the blood of Jesus to wash away sin. Today, you have put the blood of Jesus on trial. So does it wash away sin or not? The whole church grew silent and began to weep as they realized that they had been slandering the blood of Jesus Christ. Because forgiveness in Christ is foundational to the gospel message. My friends, do we put on trial the ability of our Lord to forgive all sins? The gospel of Jesus Christ forgives all sins, all of your sins and my sins, and the Bible tells us He remembers them no more. But that doesn't mean our sinful acts are somehow erased in the mind of God. He is omniscient, all-knowing. While He forgives our sins, He still remembers and knows, and so do we. When the Bible tells us He remembers them no more, it just means He will not take it up against us. So, for example, because our sins are forgiven when we place our trust in Jesus Christ, it means our sins can no longer be used against us to bar us from entry into heaven. However, we do remember what we've done so we can better appreciate God's grace in our lives. It's like when I fight with my wife, Cindy. She doesn't get hysterical, but she gets historical. And for someone with an amazing memory for dates and details, she's able to spout off dates and details that I've long forgotten of my past transgressions. 
but she still remembers them like it happened an hour ago. So I will have to continually remind her that she has forgiven me of those past transgressions so it doesn't count in the present fight, which is the point I'm trying to make. She doesn't have to forget. She just has to forgive. You see, how God forgives us is how we are to forgive others. Never in the Bible does it teach that we are to forgive and to forget forever. Even the God who has forgiven Israel of their past sins reminds them of their past sins so that they will not do it again and to show His great love and grace. And even the Apostle Paul, who knows he is forgiven, brings up his past to show that it's all because of God's grace. Therefore, my friends, you can forgive, but you don't have to forget, and that's all right. I don't think John Mark ever forgot that Paul didn't take him along on his second missionary journey. In fact, it is recorded for all history and eternity because it is in the Bible. So if we don't forget, how can we forgive? To forgive is to acknowledge that you've been hurt, but to realize you won't let it bother you, as exemplified by Christ, having committed the matter to the Lord. Now, some of you may wonder, whatever happened to the relationship between Paul and Barnabas and Paul and John Mark? Well, in Paul's writings, we find out that Paul spoke of Barnabas in the most positive of terms. You can read about it in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 6, and Colossians chapter 4, verse 10. The apostle Paul owed much to Barnabas. It was because of Barnabas who vouched for him that Paul was even accepted by the leadership at Jerusalem. And it seemed that they remained friends, even though they never worked together again, despite their contention over John Mark. As for Paul's relationship with John Mark, we find out that in the most desperate times of his ministry, Paul would ask for John Mark to come to his side, and John Mark came and was with Paul helping him in the ministry. And we read about that in Colossians chapter 4, verse 10, Philemon, verse 24, and 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 11. To have been hurt by Paul's rejection and then to forgive Paul and come to help the one who rejected you, there must have been forgiveness on both the part of Paul and John Mark. You see, would you forgive someone who had rejected you and later on help them when asked? Don't forget, John Mark was wrong for abandoning Paul and Barnabas and would have needed to apologize. And Paul also would have needed to apologize for underestimating the spiritual potential of John Mark. But it's interesting in the Bible, we do not know how they forgave each other and the circumstances that resulted in their coming together. I'm sure when they reconciled that Paul expressed how hurt he was by John Mark's abandoning of them, and John Mark shared how hurt he was for not being given a second chance. If Paul and Barnabas met, for sure they would have acknowledged how hurt they both were and sought to move forward. But what was said and how it happened, we do not know. We only know that they forgave each other. In other words, they were reconciled. As Ed Jarrett puts it, reconciliation involves forgiveness, but it goes beyond forgiveness. When I forgive someone, there is no guarantee that we will have a restored relationship. It may well be that even after I've forgiven someone, that we remain estranged. Reconciliation, however, restores the relationship. Forgiveness may be one-sided, 
but reconciliation requires both parties to be willing to participate in restoring the relationship. It is always possible and expected for me to forgive, but reconciliation will not be possible if the other party is not willing to participate. It is the same in our relationship with God. He may forgive us, but we need to be willing to participate and ask for forgiveness. Simply put, one person can forgive. It takes two to reconcile. Further, we have to understand that unless there is an acknowledgement of wrong, true forgiveness and true reconciliation cannot happen. Each of the parties may say or think in their minds, I don't need to talk to them. I don't need to talk about it because I already forgave the other person in my mind and in my heart. But that is only a one-way superficial forgiveness. Unless the offending party acknowledges that there is an issue and that they have done wrong, there can never be true reconciliation. You see, there are some who say, don't bring up the past. Let the past be past, and let's just forgive and make up. Well, there's some truth to allowing the past to be past and not to continually bring up past hurts in the present. There must be a point where wrongs are acknowledged and admitted. Because if not, and the wrongs are not identified or swept under, and personal accountability and responsibility is not taken, invariably the unresolved issues of the past will rear its ugly head again. As hard as it may be, one must admit, address, and acknowledge the wrongs for there to be true reconciliation. If someone doesn't want to talk about it and say, let's just forgive and move on, then they are not seeking true reconciliation. Every parent knows this to be true because when their kids are fighting and they are refereeing, what do you tell your kids? Say sorry, and they say sorry, and that is the end of that. But then the fighting begins soon after. However, an experienced parent will add, why are you sorry? I'm sorry for hitting you. I'm sorry for destroying your project. I'm sorry for eating your food. I'm sorry for shouting at you. That gets to the root level of the issue to allow for personal responsibility. This is true in history as well. Germany started its road towards reconciliation with the rest of the world when it disavowed fascism and apologized for the atrocities of the Nazi regime and their part in the Holocaust. Japan did the same thing when it disavowed imperialism and became pacifist. This allowed for both nations post-World War II to be accepted back into the world community. Even in our relationship with Jesus Christ, we have to acknowledge our sins and admit that we have not lived up to the standard of holiness God requires of us before we can be in close relationship with Him, even if He has forgiven us. So my friends, back to the question of why we would forgive someone who has hurt us so deeply. The simple answer, because Christ forgives us. Christ forgave you. And this is our third biblical principle. Biblical principle number three. In view of Christ's forgiveness, we need to forgive one another. In view of Christ's forgiveness, we need to forgive one another, and we can forgive one another because of Christ's forgiveness. Don't forget the first part. It's hard to forgive unless we remember how we were forgiven by Christ. Look with me at Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 to 13. Colossians 3, verses 12 to 13. Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, 
kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another, and forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. Would you underline, circle, highlight that phrase, even as Christ forgave you? My friends, you and I did not deserve God's forgiveness. None of us deserve God's forgiveness in our lives. And yet He forgave and continually forgives us sinful, backstabbing, spiritually adulterous, lying, unethical, sinful people because of His love and grace. And if He can forgive someone like us, then how can we not forgive others as well? Now, some of you may respond, okay, pastor, I will forgive that person, but I don't want to have anything to do with that person ever again. My friends, is that how you want God to treat you? Do you want Him to say to us, okay, I forgive you, but I don't want to have anything to do with you ever again? Now, there are situations where avoidance is healthy and wise, but those are exceptional, special cases. Generally, when there's true forgiveness and reconciliation, there is renewed friendship and fellowship. A woman once stayed after a church service to talk with the minister. She was downcast and despondent. I do not suppose you can help me, she said. For years, I've been unable to pray. You see, Pastor, there's a woman who came between me and my husband, and I cannot forgive her. The minister answered kindly, You cannot forgive the woman for her own sake, but could you not forgive her for Christ's sake as he forgave you? At first, the question didn't register. Then a glimmer of hope lightened the depressed woman's face. Yes, she said, you are right. I cannot forgive her on my own, but I can forgive her because I am forgiven. Just think about it. My friends, we can't forgive with our own power, but we can do so with the enabling help of our Lord. You know, just this week as I was preparing this message, I asked God to bring to mind people I need to forgive especially before I preached the sermon. But you know, as these names came to mind, I relived what they did to me, and I got more angry with them, especially since many of them refused to acknowledge the wrongs they did and the hurts they caused. It was then that I realized I cannot forgive with my own power and my own will, because quite frankly, I don't want to forgive them. But that's why the key is Christ to remember what Christ did on the cross to forgive me, then with His help, I can forgive others. As someone once remarked, spiritual passion cannot coexist with resentments. The Scriptures are clear. The unforgiving spirit saps the energy that causes Christian growth and effectiveness. My friends, how you forgive is between you and God and the offending person. But what is important is that you have a heart that is ready to forgive because Christ forgave you. Now let me close with a true story in Guidepost magazine told by a nurse in 1979 illustrating the power of forgiveness. It's a bit of a lengthy story, so bear with me. The hospital was unusually quiet that bleak January evening. I stood in the nurse's station on the seventh floor and glanced at the clock. It was 9 p.m., and I headed for room 712, last room on the hall. Room 712 had a new patient, Mr. Williams, a man in his 50s, all alone. A man strangely silent about his family. 
As I entered the room, Mr. Williams looked up eagerly, but dropped his eyes when he saw it was only me, his nurse. There seemed little indication he had suffered a slight heart attack a few hours earlier. He looked up from his starched white bed. Nurse, would you? He hesitated, tears filling his eyes. Once before, he had started to ask me a question, but it changed his mind. I touched his hand, waiting. He brushed away a tear. Nurse, would you call my daughter? Tell her I've had a heart attack, a slight one. You see, I live alone, and she's the only family I have. Of course I'll call her, I said, studying his face. He gripped the sheets and pulled himself forward, his face tense with urgency. Will you call her right away, as soon as you can? He was breathing fast, too fast. I'll call her the very first thing I said, patting his shoulder. I flipped off the light. Nurse, he called. Could you get me a paper and pencil? I dug a scrap of yellow paper and a pen from my pocket and set it on the bedside table. I walked back to the nurse's station. Mr. Williams' daughter was listed on his chart as the next of kin. I got her number from information and dialed. Her soft voice answered. Janie, this is Sue Kidd, a registered nurse at the hospital. I'm calling about your father. He was admitted tonight with a slight heart attack and... No, she screamed on the phone, startling me. He's not dying, is he? His condition is stable at the moment, I said, trying hard to sound convincing. You must not let him die, she said. Her voice was so utterly compelling that my hand trembled on the phone. He's getting the very best care. But you don't understand, she pleaded. My dad and I haven't spoken in almost a year. We had a terrible argument on my 21st birthday over my boyfriend. I ran out of the house. I, I haven't been back. All these months, I wanted to go to him for forgiveness. The last thing I said to him was, I hate you. Her voice cracked, and I heard her heave great agonizing sobs. I sat, listening, tears burning my eyes. A father and a daughter, so lost to each other. Then I was thinking of my own father many miles away. It had been so long since I had said I love you. As Janie struggled to control her tears, I breathed a prayer. Please, God, let this daughter find forgiveness. I'm coming. Now I'll be there in 30 minutes, she said. Click. She had hung up. I hurried down the hall to check room 712. I opened the door. Mr. Williams lay unmoving. I reached for his pulse. There was none. Mr. Williams had had a cardiac arrest. With lightning speed, I leveled the bed and bent over his mouth, breathing air into his lungs. I positioned my hands over his chest and compressed and frantically began CPR. Compressed and breathe, compressed and breathe. He could not die. Oh God, I prayed, his daughter is coming. Don't let it end this way. The door burst open. Doctors and nurses poured into the room, pushing emergency equipment. God, don't let it end like this. Not in bitterness and hatred. His daughter is coming. Let her find peace. But after repeated shocks on the defibrillator, there was nothing we could do. He was dead. How could this happen? How? I stood by his bed, stunned. How could I face his daughter? When I left the room, I saw her against the wall by a water fountain. A doctor who had been inside 712 only moments before stood at her side, talking to her, gripping her elbow. Such pathetic hurt reflected from her face, such wounded eyes, she knew. 
The doctor had told her that her father was gone. I took her hand and led her into the nurse's lounge. We sat on little green stools, neither saying a word. Janie, I'm so sorry, I said. It was pitifully inadequate. I never hated him, you know. I loved him, she said. God, please help her, I thought. Suddenly, she whirled toward me. I want to see him. My first thought was, why put yourself through more pain? Seeing him will only make it worse. But I got up and wrapped my arm around her. We walked slowly down the corridor to room 712. Outside the door, I squeezed her hand, wishing she would change her mind about going inside. She pushed open the door. We moved to the bed, huddled together, taking small steps in unison. Janie leaned over the bed and buried her face in the sheets. I tried not to look at her at this sad, sad goodbye. I backed against the bedside table. My hand fell upon a scrap of yellow paper. I picked it up. It read, My dearest Janie, I forgive you. I pray you will always forgive me. I know that you love me. I love you too, Daddy. The note was shaking my hands as I thrust it towards Janie. She read it once, then twice. Her tormented face grew radiant. Peace began to glisten in her eyes. She hugged a scrap of paper to her breast. Thank you, God, I whispered, looking up at the window. Life seemed as fragile as a snowflake on the window. But thank you, God, the relationships, sometimes fragile as snowflakes, can be mended together again. But there is not a moment to spare. I crept from the room and hurried to my phone. I would call my father. I would say, I love you. My friends, as Christians, we will have fights, but let us learn to forgive before it is too late by remembering the forgiveness of God in our lives. And when we do so, we can forgive others. Forgive and be free from the bondage and shackles of resentment and bitterness. Learn to have the joy of no longer being angry or bitter. I know that sometimes it is hard to forgive. Sometimes the wounds are fresh and the pain is deep. I know that Jesus recognizes that sometimes it takes time to fully forgive. But he set the example for us and died on the cross in our place to show what true forgiveness looks like. So if you find it hard to forgive, you can pray, Lord, help me to forgive. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the example you have set when you forgave each one of us and died on the cross for our sins. We don't deserve it, Lord, but yet you love us with an everlasting love and your grace is amazing and abundant and it is poured out into our lives and you forgive us. With your example, with the many arguments and disagreements we have with individuals who may hurt us in a deep way, help us to forgive not because we want to, not because we can with our own power, but because you tell us to do so and you exemplify it through how you forgave us. Lord, I pray, as many of us can pray and should pray, help me to forgive. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen.